welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And by being here, you're exposing yourself to all kinds of powerful ideas that can make a real difference to your life and your well-being. I encourage you to listen each time with a notebook in hand, a journal, a piece of paper, a device, so you can take notes and then apply what you learn to your own life. Come on to the next hour with a game plan for how you can apply these ideas to up-level your own level of health, vitality, well-being, and give yourself a life you deserve. We all deserve a wonderful life, and then stuff happens. <laughs> and then we wind up shutting ourselves down, and then we wind up living a less of the potential than we is possible for us. And so part of my goal in everything I do and what motivates me in my daily life is to help us lift the veil, help us let all of those things that hold us back go so we can be who we really are. And this is one of the places you can do that and really get in touch with your potential. So I encourage you to take notes and to apply those things that you learn. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lisa Vess. She has had a long career as a medical intuitive, and she's helped many people unravel their medical mysteries and help them find their life purpose. She's familiar with the traditional spirituality and practices of various traditions like African-American, Native American, Jamaican, Trinidadian, and spiritualist. She also is a Usui Reiki master and has a doctorate in indigenous philosophy from UC Berkeley. I am so thrilled to welcome her here, Dr. Best. Such a pleasure to have you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be able to uh, have a conversation with you. Yeah, and I just think the way you've looked to our indigenous roots to find all of the wisdom that is buried there and start to bring it out, explain it in your work, and then apply it to people is so interesting. And I'm just curious, did you begin this way or was it something that happened in your life to spark this interest in you? How did it all begin? Well, I often say it began with my birth because <laughs> I don't remember a time when I didn't have experiences with spirits and when I didn't have gifts. And I remember my birth and all the spirits in the hospital. And then as a small child, I used to have these spirit teachers come and take me out of my body at night and take me to spirit school and take me on journeys around the planet into the future and the past and kind of remind me of my past lives and remind me of why I came. And I had a lot of gifts when I was younger, like mediumship and, and clairvoyance and precognition, but I wasn't always comfortable with them. And so for much of my young life, I was determined to just be an intellectual and an artist and an academic 
And I was on a very serious path of that. And I didn't really want this other work to be at the forefront of my life, but it kept intruding. And throughout my, uh, you know, teens, 20s and 30s, I kept having teachers appear in my life and say, oh, we're going to train you. And so I got trained, you know, by teachers in Jamaica and in Trinidad. And and then I got trained by a firekeeper in the Native Sweat Lodge tradition. And in all of those cases, I was not seeking teachers. I was not seeking to develop my gifts. I just was in these situations where they kept coming up to me and saying, you're supposed to do this. And it wasn't until I got uh, very ill that I went to a medical intuitive and she told me, you have a lot of gifts and you're not really developing them or dealing with them. You're trying to hide them. And if you don't deal with them, you're going to stay sick. And I was willing to do absolutely anything to not be sick. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and that's when I started to get really serious about actually proactively you know, choosing to take classes versus just waiting for teachers to show up in my life. And I was still, though, a professor and I was still trying to stay in that life and be an academic and keep this part secret. So I was, you know, professor, philosopher by day, psychic by night. And it was, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I could keep it under wraps. But eventually I did fully embrace the healer's path, you know, begin first volunteering and, and doing a lot of sessions for friends and family and churches. And then eventually I did finally hang a shingle and begin to do this work as a practitioner and then later develop the work as a teacher. You know, I'm just laughing because sometimes my wife and I go to events, like we'll go to Crofts Fair where we live and we'll say to each other, okay, we're going out now into the community. Let's look normal. We need to pretend to people here. <laughs> and then when we get back sometimes, Jennifer, I say to her, oh, we did a really good job. Everyone thought we were normal. Nobody called 911. <laughs> I remember reapplying for the, the American Medical Association to get our courses reaccredited because they have to do that every six years. And I thought, well, if they knew how weird we were, they would never do it. So every time that we get reaccredited, I think, why? I squeaked by again. We looked normal enough to get reaccredited by the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association. So I, I'm just cr absolutely cracking up when you say that. You're a, a philosopher by day and a scientist <laughs> by night. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Research actually shows that a lot of people in academia, a lot of people in social psychology, a lot of people in the hard sciences even, physics and chemistry are actually having all kinds of anomalous experiences. They're having out-of-body experiences. They're having all of these things, and they just don't admit it. Right. <laughs> they don't want to be made fun of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our failed efforts to appear normal. <laughs> yeah, and yet if we look at history at these really powerful figures in the history of science, like Einstein and Tesla, you know, and Edison, you know, they all talked about having these mystical experiences that actually contributed to their scientific discoveries. Absolutely. In fact, Einstein once said that no great scientific discovery has been made other than in those altered states. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, okay, so uh, I just love that, that you were living this dual life. Was there one event or was there one catalytic moment or epiphany that made you then decide to not keep a secret and come out and hang out that shingle and start to do this overtly? There were a couple, you know. I mean, one thing that I don't usually talk about 
that happened was that when I was a professor, I was the victim of police brutality. And that had a huge impact on my decision to leave the academy. And so it was kind of like the universe, you know, kind of gave me a giant nudge. <laughs> and, you know, this often happens, right, that we have these events happen in our life, which which feel tragic or challenging. And we find out later that they had to happen to kind of pivot us. And so I would say that was one thing, although I didn't immediately, you know, hang a shingle after that. I was still working as a, you know, a speaker, a philosopher and an artist. And I was still like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and really what it was, was I just kept getting pulled back in. So sometimes I credit it with a friend of mine. She's a medical doctor and she I was I had this year in Providence, Rhode Island, where I had a year off from all my gifts. So I had decided at a certain point that I was I was I was tired <laughs> and I didn't want to have all of these experiences anymore. And so I was going to just be a normal person. And so I had like a gap year. You know, I had this year off <laughs> where I banished all my guides. I took all my gifts offline. And it was a wonderful time. I got to, you know, uh, work and socialize and party and date. <laughs> and I didn't pick up anyone's information. I didn't know their, their personal details. I didn't know anything about the future. And it was wonderful. But during that time that I was trying to kind of hide out and, you know, escape my path, I met this friend who was a medical doctor and she was going through some health issues. And she insisted that I do medical intuitive scans on her. And so I did, but I'm like, you know, I don't really do this anymore, you know, <laughs> and I did it. And she really pushed me in that direction and said, you know, you really have to offer this to people because she knew as a doctor that she wasn't getting the help she needed from her colleagues. So she had this kind of mystery illness where she had been to lots of doctors and they weren't able to solve it. And then I was able to provide some insights, which, which helped her. And so I sometimes give her credit for, for pushing me in the <laughs> in the right direction as well. Yeah, and you're so right that those shattering events of our lives or those puzzling events of our lives or those unpalatable events of our lives, one friend of mine calls them awful, A-W-F-U-L, awful gifts. And they are awful at the time. And yet they do move us and propel us onto liberating those potentials that are in, in us. And then, of course, you start to exercise them and uh, you find that they they really are, are a blessing, not only to you, but also the world. I'm also curious as to how you integrate. I mean, these are a lot of different traditions and they obviously have a lot of commonalities as well. How do you integrate all of these in your practice? Well, you know, it's interesting because spirit was in charge of my life and I wasn't. I kept getting all of these trainings throughout my life that I wasn't signing up for, right? So from the time I was very young, you know, I had a great grandmother who was teaching me things. And then I had my mother teaching me certain things. And then I was taught by these different teachers. And I didn't have a game plan. So I wasn't thinking, oh, how can I use all these teachings? I wasn't. I was just receiving them. And then when I got to the point where I was taking classes, like in psychic development and mediumship and healing and Reiki, at that point, I thought I was doing that just for my own, you know, health development and well-being, spiritual, you know, path. And I still was in denial about the fact that I was, you know, learning all of these things so that I could help people. When I started to help people, it, I had this just very clear sense that I was meant to be a medical intuitive. And that was in part because so many teachers I had worked with kept pushing me in that direction saying, look, this is a unique gift. A lot of people don't have this gift. There's a real need for this gift. And of course, there are a lot more medical intuitives now, but back then there weren't as many. And so I felt like as somebody who had been through a lot of health challenges, 
that I really wanted to help people who had been through that. And so I, I was really just pushed by the desire to help. And so I started out thinking that I had this narrow focus of, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a medical intuitive. And I also thought be, that I was going to teach it in a way that was not explicitly cultural, you know, because I was in, a, in Los Angeles and, and that's kind of the culture there is very polished, very professional, very, you know, uh, there's a certain way that people present their work there. And so I was trying to kind of present this medical intuitive work and I wasn't trying to explicitly kind of present it as indigenous medical intuition, although that's what I was doing. And it was informed by all of these teachers I had, but I wasn't really uh, thinking about that originally. I was just thinking, how can I help people with medical mysteries? Well, over time, people kept coming to me with different needs and spirit teachers kept coming to me and giving me new modalities and pushing me in different directions. And so, for example, I had people coming from medical intuition who had, you know, physical complaints, right? So they're coming to me, they're saying, you know, I have this uh, digestive problem. I've been to lots of doctors. They can't figure it out. All the tests are normal. Uh, what's going on, right? So as a medical intuitive, I scan them and I look at the physical causes first. I try to identify the actual physical problem. And then I might also scan for emotional and spiritual causes. In the context of doing many sessions like that, I started to see more and more people who had spiritual causes and who wanted to delve into that more deeply. And as a result, I started to offer life purpose sessions because people would come to me for their medical. And then once we had addressed their medical, they would say, well, I want to come back and learn more about my pre-life conference and my you know, decisions I made about this incarnation. And so I started doing whole sessions just for that. Now, I was already trained as a spiritual healer and as a Reiki practitioner. And so I was also doing, you know, hands-on healing. And I started out, you know, volunteering in churches and, and whatnot. And I would offer that as well. Now, I'm a medium and mediumship informed all of my work. And eventually I got so much of a demand for it that I also did started to do mediumship sessions for people. But I only did mediumship for tragic death. That was my, that's my specialty. And that has to do with my life purpose. And so it was like over time, I kept being led to keep adding kind of more modalities on as they were needed. And it wasn't until about five years ago. So I started teaching maybe about eight, nine years ago. And I was teaching psychic development and I was teaching Reiki and healing and mediumship. And eventually I started teaching medical intuition. And it wasn't until about five years ago that I was invited to this women of color medicine retreat. And then I was invited to start running ceremony in the Bay Area. And it wasn't until then that I started to very explicitly teach and run ceremony where I talked about all the traditions that I was trained in, all of the different cultural traditions. So I started talking actually about, you know, the Caribbean traditions and African and Hoodoo and Native American. And that led to me starting a women of color apprenticeship program, women of color medicine apprenticeship program. And I feel like I had to be kind of, I had to reach a certain age where I was kind of mature enough and comfortable enough with my mixed heritage to be able to fully embrace all of my training explicitly. Because as somebody who had traveled in and out of different communities, because all the trainings I have are in traditions that are also a part of my heritage. But as a mixed person, you know, whenever I would go into these different communities, I would kind of, 
adapt to that community. And so when I was in a native community, I was just, you know, doing my native practice. And when I was in an African-American, I was just doing the African-American. And it was finally a few years ago that I said, you know, I really have to just express all of my modalities and all of my trainings at once and be very clear about it. And I think I needed to reach a certain level of maturity to do that. When I started doing that, it was so powerful because I was able to help so many people who told me that they hadn't found teachers or healers who understood their cultural background. And I was able to reach so many people from, you know, different cultural backgrounds because I was really working explicitly in these backgrounds and talking about them. And this was very healing for a lot of people, especially women in the communities where I was teaching. And then more recently, I started to teach, I was teaching medical intuition. So I have a medical intuition course that I taught live for many years. And now I have it on my website as a, a you know, recorded course. And then I started teaching it as an indigenous medical intuition course for the Shift Network this year. And that allowed me to talk about what I had been doing all these years, but to talk about it very explicitly. And I think, again, the time had to be right. You know, the time wasn't right before to do that. You know, there ha the time has to be right for the teacher and also for the students out there and the, and the audience and the planet. Like this was, you know, this is the right time, I think, for that work. People are interested in global indigenous perspectives on healing. And we've also kind of come along. We've made a certain amount of progress on the issue of cultural appropriation. We still have a long way to go, but because there's at least now a consciousness about it, it makes it a little bit easier to teach this work in mixed crowds without having to worry about it being misused. Interesting that we reached that point. And yeah, you see these uh, large shifts in consciousness happening in society, but it does take a while for them to really work their way all the way through. And the uh, the transitional period can be, can be very turbulent as well. So I'm personally an optimist, and I believe we're heading in a generally positive direction. But I know there are often a lot of bumps along the way as, to, as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, we have work to do. But I think right now, there's a certain openness on the planet to learning from the wisdom of these ancient indigenous traditions, learning from them respectfully. Let me ask you one really super broad question. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you were to characterize what holds people back and look for a commonality there. So with all these traditions, and then not just indigenous traditions, but also Western psychology, medicine, and generally, as you work with individuals, what are some big commonalities that are standing between people and their full well-being? What are some of the common threads you see in all of this work? Well, when I think about my clients who come to me for healing, especially my medical intuitive clients, I think a lot of them are held back. My clients or patients are women, and a lot of them are held back by feelings of obligation or societal responsibilities, uh, which cause them to make choices in their life, which are unhealthy for them. And so, so many times I'll, I'll meet people who are ill. And one of the big causes of their illness is their relationship or their job or where they live or their family. <laughs> you know, these like major aspects of their life that they think they can't change or they have no choice over. Interesting. So that they, they're in these situations, they feel they have no choice but to do it this way. And unbeknownst to them, it's making them sick. Exactly. 
Yeah. And so I think those are probably, for me, the most challenging obstacles because you can tell somebody, okay, this is what's wrong with your kidneys. Uh, You have a problem, you know, an imbalance here. Uh, It would help if you changed your diet. It would help if you went to see this kind of a doctor or practitioner. You might benefit from massage. Maybe you should try this other treatment, right? You can say all those things to somebody. They could pursue that. But if there's also... If it's also the case that their kidneys are acting up because they're pissed off, right, (laughs) at their spouse, but they're going to stay married to that person, the problem's either going to come back or it's going to reappear in a different part of the body because they haven't dealt with this like huge toxic relationship that's the really the root of a lot of their problems. They may not feel they can get out of or may not see any, any way out of. We need to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lisa Vest. You can find her at drvestmedicalintuitive.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and Welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm so thrilled you're here. And we'll have more in this next segment from Dr. Jennifer Lisa Best. Her book is called The Ethical Psychic. The Ethical Psychic. And her website is drbestmedicalintuitive.com. I'm really curious about a number of things you mentioned earlier. But one thread I want to pick up is that a lot of these indigenous traditions have been suppressed, oppressed in whatever form they were, often for decades or centuries. And practice of some of these things has been condemned. And in some cases, people were actually killed for, for practicing them. So they're bundled with huge intergenerational, interracial trauma as well. And whenever I'm I'm aware of these traditions, I'm aware that there's that that live wire there that is not even remotely, I don't think, healed in our society yet. And I, I'm just wondering um, how you feel that, perceive that, navigate that, navigate that for people you're working with, and how that shows up in, in your life and work. Yeah, it's a really, it, it's a big problem. And, you know, I think it's it's also why doing this work right now is so important, because it has been suppressed so much of it for so long. Uh, you know, I combine, you know, Native American practice with voodoo and Caribbean practices. And there's been a lot of stigmatization around African-American hoodoo and Caribbean traditions like voodoo and santeria that have been portrayed in a very negative light in media, been, you know, called demonic by Christians. And these traditions were, you know, were evolved under slavery over centuries of incredible oppression. And also with the Native American traditions, they were outlawed and were ha- had to go underground. And so we have traditions now like the Native American Sweat Lodge, which I'm trained in, which is a pan-Indian tradition based on traditions that were found in many different tribes. But because of Indian reorganization, Indian relocation programs, uh, termination programs, and so many destructive government programs, a lot of Native Americans began to work cross-tribally and to kind of combine traditions from different tribes into these newer traditions like the sweat lodge, which you can find in lots of tribes, but you know, like the Native American church, there's and and like hoodoo, they have taken elements of these traditional indigenous 
religious and spiritual practices and created syncretic newer approaches. And this is the way that we survived. You know, this is the way that uh, indigenous people from the Americas and also from Africa survived uh, despite the onslaught of colonialism and, and, you know, the conquest and slavery and all of these government programs. And, you know, there's also been a real problem over the years with, you know, anthropology and, you know, hippies and different people becoming fascinated with indigenous practices, whether it's Native American traditions, traditions in Peru now are really popular, right? One's going down there to do ayahuasca. Uh, people are going to South Africa to learn the Sangoma tradition. And there's been a lot of, you know, misrepresentation and you know, the problem with, you know, kind of white experts taking over certain practices and setting themselves up. We see this in shamanism, that shamanism has developed as a field now that is dominated by non-Indigenous people, even though shamanism comes out of Indigenous traditions. Uh, and I talk about that in my book. I talk about cultural appropriation and I talk about, you know, fake shamans and fake gurus and how that impacts our ability, those of us who are trained in the actual practices, our ability to practice them without being kind of having to practice them through this filter of what other people have said about them. That, that impacts the way our work is received. And then also there's this caution. We have to be very careful about the way that we present these traditions because it's possible that somebody will take what we said and then try to repackage it and sell it, you know. So like when I taught my Indigenous medical intuition course, I had a lot of students who were not, most of them were not Indigenous to, to any place. And I had to keep telling them, I am not teaching you how to be an Indigenous medical intuitive. You can't be that. I am teaching you medical intuition as it's been informed by the indigenous teachers that I have studied under and in the hopes of expanding your own healing practice. But you have to be real explicit about that because people will, you know, then take what you've taught them and then write a book about it or create their own course or set up their own website. And suddenly they're the expert. And because of the power dynamics, in, especially in the United States, a person that looks a certain way will sell more books and get more publishing deals and get paid higher amounts of money and get more academic positions than the person who is actually from that culture. <laughs> and so, yeah, all of these things impact our work. They impact even like my work with individual, you know, clients. I've had people and some of my students balk when they see me engaging in certain rituals in class or in a session because they're Christian or because, you know, because the person is a Christian and they've been taught that anything associated with these, you know, black or indigenous cultures is demonic or dangerous or, you know, and so I have to deal with that too. I've had to deal with that. And for me, it took me a while to realize that I needed to just stop being, concerning myself with those beliefs and just try not to attract those people anymore to my classes. Because if they want to learn from me, but they don't want to learn from me, you know, in my totality, then they don't really want to learn from me, right? You can't just kind of cut, cut out practices from the cultural context and learn them that way or practice them that way. It's really beneficial to learn them in context. And, you know, so one of the things I started doing more is talking a lot about character, because my teachers that I had, that I've had teachers from different traditions, including this, you know, the spiritualist tradition in the U.S., which is predominantly white. But I've had teachers in different traditions. And one thing I noticed is that 
the indigenous teachers always put a focus on character and uh, the character of the healer, the character of the medicine person, being very careful about not harming people, being a certain kind of person, not just a person with gifts, but a certain kind of person with gifts. And those were things that I used to teach and I decided I need to teach them even more. And so that's why I wrote The Ethical Psychic is because I wanted this material to be available to more people. And so that's something that came out of those those traditions. And I think that's one of the benefits of us kind of making sure that we include the context for some of the practices that we either practice or teach, because there's so much richness there. There's much more openness to that now, too, than there used to be. So I think that, again, we're going in the right direction where we have a long way to go. But acknowledging these things, talking about them, bringing in that that conversation is really powerful. And I know sometimes I love having these conversations because I also like making people uncomfortable when they like start to contemplate some of the stuff. And I think it's really nice sometimes when we start talking about these issues and how people in the room start squirming. And they, they get really uncomfortable about this. And so we, you know, it, like in my community, in tapping community, the meditation community, I'm just like, we're doing podcasts about this and professional development classes about this and really bringing these kinds of issues into, into the forefront because half of the people there in the room who are white have never even thought about them. They didn't know there was a question that would be asked. It never even occurred to them to start thinking about this. So, and, and they're very surprised that there's, uh, you know, just for example, when you're treating somebody, someone of color, are you aware of all of these things? You know, are you bringing that into a treatment plan? There are, and, and we, we give them various practice scenarios and they've never even thought about them before. So we're starting to at least surface this issue. Again, we're, we're very, very far from healing it, but at least we're starting to acknowledge that we as a society have a problem. We're going to go to a break right now, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to Dr. Jennifer Lisa Best. Her website is drbestmedicalintuitive.com, and her book is Ethical Psychic. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. I'm so delighted to be sharing with you today. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lisa Best, and her website is drbestmedicalintuitive.com. I'm really fascinated by what in psychology we call anomalous phenomena and anomalous states of mind, anomalous experiences. And for example, you, you talk about the Akashic records. I'm so curious as to what those are, how you perceive them, how you access them. I know there's some scientific work on that, but I'd love to know what your personal experience is in, in tapping into that whole realm. Tapping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Akashic records are really fascinating. You know, I first learned that term from Edgar Casey. When I started out as a medical intuitive, people kept telling me, oh, you're, you're like Edgar Casey, and you should read it about Edgar Casey." And I did, and I heard that term. And there was a certain point in my life when I was at a, a psychic fair at a spiritualist church, and there was a practitioner there who did an Akashic Records reading for me. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of that before. 
I've never, I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen someone in the present do it. I'd only heard of it as this kind of, you know, historical thing that Casey talked about. And so I called up this Kashuk Records reader online one day and I said, oh, let me, let me find out what about this. And it just so happened that the universe lined it up so that the person that I contacted was somebody who was not practicing at the time. And she said to me, oh, you don't need me to do a session with you. You can do it yourself. I'll just send you this meditation. And she didn't send me like an actual meditation. She sent me a typed up meditation, you know, it was just words on a paper. And so I was like, okay, I'm looking at this paper, trying to read it and close my eyes and read it and close my eyes. I'm trying to meditate myself that way. And I only got through a couple lines when I was transported to my library. And all my life, I had traveled to this celestial library, but I didn't know it was called the Akashic Records. And so that's how I learned that what people were using that term for referred to a place that I had gone to many times to get information. And that kind of opened the door for me to go there more often and to uh, kind of be more explicit about it. And I think it's very similar to, you know, people have things like this in a lot of different traditions. And I think the Akashic Records is just a very nice, somewhat modern term. You know, it's based on Casey and before that, the Theosophists and before that, the ancient Vedic texts talk about the Akasha. So it's a Hindu concept. But there's a way in which people from a lot of different traditions can relate to it because we all know what it's like to go to other realms and get information. I like it because it's a good way to organize information. And probably because I'm a scholar, it appeals to me to work in a library, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> I started to uh, to go to this library, not just for myself, but for other people. And over time, what happened was it kept changing. So like when I first started going to the Akashic Records, and the Akashic Records, for those who don't know, is an energy library. It's a it's another realm that you travel to, typically out of body, or some people do it in a meditative or you know deep meditation. Uh, and you go to this altered state or this out of body state, and you visit this energetic library, which is you know actually in the causal realm. So it's not you know in the physical realm or the astral realm. It's above that. So it requires to, that you really are able to travel quite far. It's not something that you would access, say, in your dreams. And so it requires a certain amount of discipline people who know how to really travel that far. And when you get to this library, you can typically access information about yourself. And so that's one of the things I teach people is I teach them how to go to the Akashic Records for their own development, for their own answers. And they can go there and they can ask all the questions they want about their soul, their past lives, their incarnation, their soul lessons, etc. It's another thing to go to the Akashic Library for somebody else and access somebody else's information because that requires permission and it requires a certain spiritual development that where you're not going to kind of be rooting around people's personal business and misuse it. And so everybody can't do that work, or it's not so much can't, it's like, it's not really appropriate for everyone to do that. Just like, it's not appropriate for me to play the violin. You know, I, I didn't incarnate with that gift. <laughs> I could try, but it wouldn't be good for other people, right? <laughs> so, you know, there are certain people like myself who have been given access to the library in order to give information to other people. And so when I first started going for other people, I did it in the context of medical intuition, where people were coming to me with these medical mysteries. I was scanning, I was getting the physical causes, the emotional causes. And then with some people, there were also spiritual causes. And the way that I accessed those is I would go up to the Akashic Records and find out about their uh, pre-life commitments. And so in my Akashic records, and I say my, because when I've taught Akashic records, I've discovered that different people view the Akashic records differently. And I think it depends on the individual's development. 
what they need to have in their records for what their work is. My records uh, have expanded over the years. So it's kind of like they're in constant construction and there's always a new room being added on. (laughs) So when I first started out with the records just for myself, it was this big library, kind of like a research room. And I would come in with this, uh, it was a high tech library, probably because of my, you know, science background. And I would have this kind of fob and I would stick it into a computer and then this movie would start playing of my past life. Um, and so it was just that one room with the, the high-tech movie. And then over time, I developed all of these rooms and different rooms provide different information. So if somebody's coming to me and they need to know about why they're sick with a particular ailment and there's a past life cause, we'll go to the theater room in my Akashic Records, which looks like a movie theater. And there's a projectionist, which is a spiritual guide who helps us with picking which past life to view. And then I will be shown the past life. And and then after the past life, I'll be able to go to the pre-life conference, which is on a cloud between the soul and the soul's incarnation guide, where they're having a discussion about, okay, you're about to incarnate into this body. Uh, These are the lessons you're going to learn or these lessons you're going to teach. This is the kind of body you're going to pick. And these are the kind of, you know, kind of pivot moments we're going to give you to help you on your uh, life purpose. And this is your purpose. And sometimes we, you know, we go to that pre-life conference and we ask, okay, why did this person, you know, develop this condition? Or why, why did you show us this past life as it relates to this condition? And then the guide will explain, well, you know, you came here to teach X, Y, and Z. And so we set up this illness as a way to kind of get your attention and put you back on the path to teaching X, Y, and Z. Right. And so there'll be some clarification of what the spiritual purpose is of their particular illness. And so that's one way in which I use the Akashic Records. But there's all these other rooms in there. And so there's also a conference room. And in the conference room, I can take people and go and have meetings with different beings, like their ancestors or their guides or spirit animals. Sometimes they're having conversations with, you know, different beings like rocks and plants. You know, there's just, you can talk to any kind of being in the conference room. And then there's a room uh, called the bank vault where people can get information about their gifts and people are incarnating with certain gifts. Sometimes they're not really clear what they are. And sometimes when you tell them what they are, it helps them to kind of, you know, get on their path. Uh, There's another room that's a healing room. And so the Akashic records can be used for healing as well. It's a different level of healing. Uh, When I do healing on the Akashic records, uh, I use my body as a, as a channel. And I have, there's a being called the mother who sends healing through me from the records into the person, into the session. It's just different, like, you know, Reiki or acupuncture, you're also working with, you know, energy healing, but this is more like, you know, high level divine healing. Powerful. And then there's that intermediary of the mother who is helping transmit that into the level of our uh, personal lives, our personal reality. We're going to go to a break right now. Please stay tuned, listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lisa Vest. Her website is drvestmedicalintuitive.com. We'll be right back after a break. Welcome back to High Energy Health. So happy to have you here. And please do check out the website of my guest. Go to drvestmedicalintuitive.com. So 
Jennifer, we had the opportunity for these messages, this information, this guidance, and there is all this love out there for us in the universe to help guide us on our way and fulfill us. And there's also the whole question of just letting go and surrendering to what is. <laughs> when do you seek guidance? When do you surrender? <laughs> the answer to both of those questions is all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. And that's you know, that's what's challenging for us as earth beings, as you know, earthlings is, you know, we're we're incarnated into these physical bodies with these egos, and we, you know, this planet, the, the circumstances of our lives require us to kind of take charge of our lives to a certain extent, right? We have to make choices about our survival and, you know, and we have to have these personalities, you know, it's part of the earth school is that you develop, you come here with a personality, with a identity, right? With what you think of as who you are. And so we have these little selves, right? And it's not who we really are. Who we really are is this higher self. And then a little piece of our higher self or our soul has incarnated as this little person, Jennifer. And But then this person, Jennifer, starts thinking she's important or that the identity of Jennifer is important. And of course it isn't. It's, you know, as my guides explain it to me, it's a, you know, it's like a hologram. It's a, it's an illusion to a certain extent, but it's also very real in this dimension. And so then how do we kind of live this life of this little person this little earth being while staying aware and conscious of who we really are on, on a higher level in our entirety. And that's the challenge. You know, one of the things that I always do and what I always teach my students to do is to do meditation on a regular basis, connecting to your higher self. So I teach a higher self meditation. I can do it in five minutes, but I just tell people, you know, connect to your higher self every day because your higher self is going to remind you of who you really are and why you're really here and now you can also connect to your guides if you if you work with guides or to angels or ancestors there's so many beings spirit animals rocks i mean i work with so many beings you can work with so many beings and why because all of those beings have a perspective that we don't they're able to kind of broaden our perspective remind us of the nature of reality and how it's it goes beyond this dimension it goes beyond this lifetime it goes beyond this incarnation this identity and we need those reminders because when we don't get reminded of that on a regular basis we get really caught up in aspects of ourselves which are not that important you know and so and that's where we get kind of arrogant and arrogance you know uh, you know, pride cometh before a fall, you know, arrogance doesn't really serve us very well in this lifetime because it makes us kind of deaf to a greater understanding. And when you're humble, that means that you're open to learning and you're aware that you don't know and you're aware of how little you know. And when you're in that kind of humble place, you're constantly seeking for guidance and advice from those who know more than you whether those are human teachers or spirit teachers or your higher self or your creator or your ancestors, you're always seeking for guidance because you know, okay, I'm just this little Jennifer. I don't know that much, right? I've only been on the planet so many decades. There are people out there, there are spirits out there who have had way more incarnations than I have. There are ancestors who live longer than I have. There are animals out there that know things that I don't know by virtue of their experience as animals or as rocks. And so there's always this opportunity to learn. And so I try to ask for guidance daily. And when I don't, <laughs> because I don't always, that's of course yeah. when 
conversations occur. And then I get humbled uh, because if you're not humble, you will get humbled. (laughs) (laughs) You can choose it or you can, you know, you can be active about it or receptive about it. But I humbled and be forced into that state of surrender, right? Because when you fully surrender control of your life to a higher awareness, whether it's your higher self, who you consider your creator, your angels, any being at a higher level to you, whenever you surrender your life you know, to the universe, some people say the universe, you let go of the reins, you let go of the need to control your life, you let go of the need to be in charge and to be right and to be the boss and to know and to be the one who knows exactly what's going on in your life. <laughs> when you yes. let go of that, yeah. So you uh, surrender before you're forced to surrender and that opens up all those gifts. It's been such a joy to connect with you. Thank you so much for what you do for your work. And I feel so blessed. I feel so grateful we've had this time to share today. Thank you. Bless you. And everyone, thanks for being here. Thanks for connecting and use this information, use this awareness for your own well-being and that of everyone around you. Thanks again.